Hello, and welcome to The World As We Know It, a history and geography podcast where you're invited to an audio tour of each of the world's 197 sovereign states. My name is Brad. My name is Kiki, and as always, we are your hosts. This week, our discussion is on the nation of... Montenegro! You just heard the first kind of march section of the National Anthem of Montenegro, which is really awesome sounding. But as always, we're going to begin with some overall thoughts and and our initial familiarity ratings. The initial familiarity, Brad? Precisely. It only gets worse every episode. (laughs) Yep. It gets harder to say the more we say it. (laughs) Uh, So I guess I'll start with my initial familiarity rating. Ooh. I said that pretty well. Hey. Um, Gonna say I know that Montenegro is a microstate. And that's about it. I don't know much. I know that the name also means Black Mountain because of Montenegro. But did you know that before research? Oh, I did because I've got common sense and basic linguistic skills. Don't brag, Kiki. Stay <laughs> humble. Um, and I know that I know where it is. I know that it's in the Baltics. Uh, so I'm going to give myself initial familiarity. Wait, Balkans or Baltics? What's the Balkans? Baltics oh, is... Oh, okay. You got me good. You got me good because the Baltics are um, in Northern Europe, as many of our listeners know, and caught that immediately. That's a minus a point, folks. Yes, you guys. Um, I'm actually, full disclosure, coming off a date where I had two beers and I am after my first glass of Pinot Grigio here. We're way up the Black Mountain, folks. So yeah, we are on the Black Mountain. <laughs> so give us that a 10. What is in your... the Balkans, <laughs> which is a mountain range. I also actually know, um, as a matter of fact, that it is the mountain range is the Dalmatians. And I very much care about the dog breed Dalmatians. Still, my familiarity rating is a 1. Okay, so 1. Yeah. All right. all, suffice it to say, all of that is pretty low. Um, I'm also going to give myself a 1, because when... Our, our random number generator, which is the way we pick countries, you know, spat out Montenegro. I, I, for a second, I was like, wait a minute. What about Serbia and Montenegro? I didn't even know that, that it, they became different countries. They, well, I knew they had split, but it didn't sound right to say just Montenegro by itself. So me not me not knowing that concretely, one for sure. I, I got a lot to learn before I research. Well, I feel like I need to, if I knew more than you, then mine should be a two. I'm going to say my familiar rating's a two, because I know slightly more than Brad. It's not hard, folks. <laughs> <laughs> He's kind of an idiot. Just kidding. Brad's very smart. Anyway, how about I give a snapshot? Yeah, let's see how smart you are, Kiki. Let's get the snapshot right. of Montenegro. Montenegro became a state in 2004. Uh, we'll get into the flag a little bit later, but it's the basics the, of the, the flag... It's the third youngest country, right? Yes, it's a very baby country. So what's between South Sudan and Montenegro? What was the second youngest? I don't have, you don't have to know off the top of your head. I'm just wondering. I don't know off the top of my head. Okay. I'm sure we'll find that out in our cultural discussion by the time, because I can Google it when you're talking. Okay. Continue. <laughs> All right. Um, so the flag, just at a glance, is a gold border with a red a red flag gold border with a, uh, what's it? It's, a, it's an eagle. It has its own name. We'll talk about more of that in the flag corner. I promise. It's your favorite segment. Um, it's my favorite segment, and I'm really looking forward to going into it. The capital of Montenegro is Podgorica, yep. which we looked up how to pronounce. Um, it is a pretty small country. The square mileage is 5,333 5, square miles. I wasn't Aww. even ready to say 5,000 because I was ready for the 100,000 mark, yeah. but no. <laughs> it's a little, little country. Um, and that is 13,812 kilometers squared if you are following not... If you don't the... use freedom units. <laughs> exactly. It's the 74th GDP. Um, so, doing pretty well for a tiny little country compared to some other countries we've seen. Yeah. Official language is Montenegrin. And we're actually going to get into our first ever uh, linguistics... Well, it's a brand new segment, folks. Yeah. It's called the Linguist's Armchair. The Linguist's Armchair. We're going to get into that later, so we'll learn a bit, little bit more about Montenegrin. But other languages uh, in official use are Serbian, Bosnian, Albanian, and Croatian, which I'm sure our resident linguist will cover um, because they're kind of the same. That's wrong to say. Because <laughs> um, they're not the same. There's essential differences, but our lingu- we're going to cover it in language. They're kissing cousins. Yep. Ethnic groups, 44.5% Montenegrin, 28.7% Serb, 
8.6% Bosniak, 4.9% Albanian, 0.9% Croat, and then 13.6% others. So for this tiny, tiny country, there's a lot of neighboring ethnicities there from countries that border Montenegro. Um, if you don't know, by the way, what we were saying, too, it is in southeastern Europe. Yes. In the Balkans region, um, which also includes countries like Bosnia and Herzegovina, Croatia. Kosovo. Kosovo, yes. So those countries down there. They have a parliamentary legislature and a unitary dominant party parliamentary constitutional republic. The president is Milo Dukanovic, and the prime minister is Dusko Markovic. And a little thing that I picked up about Eastern European and, um, I guess I should say Eastern name and customs, is when you see like an ovik or an ova, from what I understand it means of, so it's like, oh, of dunik, dunik. Maybe we'll edit that out. We'll get to it later. Anyway, the major religions in the area are the Serbian Orthodox Church, uh, and especially that's Christianity. Um, there's also a fair amount of Muslims in the area, like Serbian Muslims, people coming up from northern the Middle East and northern Africa. Um, this was a huge reason that Brad will go into about the Bosnian War, yep. religious stuff going on, um, a lot of Catholics in the country, uh, so that's kind of how it's divided up there. Okay. All right, what, what else do we have to say in the snapshot? Uh, so what's the, what about a demonym? Uh, it is a Montenegrin. So, so Montenegrin people. Yeah, so okay. a person from Montenegro is called a Montenegrin. And we'll get into this in discussion, but they're not in the EU, but they still use the euro, They do right? use the euro, which is interesting because it's larger neighbor, Croatia, doesn't use the euro oh, what officially. Do they, what do they use? Um, I don't know. We'll probably talk about that in our Croatia episode. You better, Kiki. Um, but it's interesting to see a smaller country using the euro when a larger country that is part of the EU, like Croatia, doesn't. Hmm. It's interesting. Um, and we'll see maybe like some changes there in the next 10 years, people are predicting. But anyway. Great snapshot, Kiki. Yep. Uh, thank you. I, I was reading straight from Wikipedia. <laughs> the sum of all knowledge, one would say. <laughs> Before we get into the historical timeline of Montenegro, we're going to have our newest segment, the Linguist Armchair. Welcome to the Linguist Armchair. The Linguist Armchair, where my sister, a PhD candidate at CU Boulder, gives us a lesson or two about linguistics. My name is Maureen Cossey, and I'm a PhD student in linguistics at the University of Colorado at Boulder. I'm a sociocultural linguist, meaning that I study the relationship between language, culture, and society. Part of my research is on language ideologies, the ideas, attitudes, and values that we place on the language. In this segment, I will discuss the differences, if any, between Serbian and Montenegrin. The nations of Serbia, Croatia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Montenegro, and Kosovo share one language, which linguists call Serbo-Croatian. Historically, Serbo-Croatian has been referred to as just Serbian. Serbo-Croatian is what we call a pluricentric language, which is one language with several formally standardized versions. A standardized language is a language that undergoes a fixed spelling system, codification in dictionaries, and public acceptance of those standards. There are four standardized varieties of Serbo-Croatian, Serbian, Croatian, Bosnian, and most recently, Montenegrin. Now, there may be some differences in pronunciation, spelling system, or word choice between these languages, but each variety is still easily understood by speakers of the other languages. A Bosnian can understand a Montenegrin, who can understand a Croatian, and so on. A parallel example of this kind of mutual intelligibility is American and British English. Even though we use different words and different pronunciations, we still share enough in common to easily understand one another. So, if all these are the same language, why are they categorized separately? Well, this could be in part language ideologies, which again are the beliefs and values we hold towards language. We find that orthographies or spelling systems carry a great deal of symbolic meaning to speakers. Having a language that is yours is an important component of identity. The dissolution of Yugoslavia affected language attitudes and ideologies in the post-Yugoslav regions. All of these different areas needed to find their own new identities. 
So the social conception of Serbian began to separate on ethnic, political, and religious lines into what we now know as Serbian, Croatian, Montenegrin, and Bosnian. Orthography, among other linguistic features like the use of loanwords, becomes symbolic of those divisions. Croatian, for example, is the only Serbo-Croatian language that favors the Latin script. This represents a symbolic cultural divide from Serbian, which uses the Cyrillic script. In the case of Croatia, Cyrillic was considered too Russian and not in line with a westernizing Croatia that sought to distance itself from its Soviet history. The Montenegrin standard, on the other hand, is still emerging. In 2009, the Montenegrin Minister of Education adopted the Montenegrin alphabet, which uses both the Montenegrin Cyrillic and Montenegrin Latin alphabets. These versions are almost identical to Serbo-Croatian Latin and Serbian Cyrillic respectively, but with additional letters to represent sounds unique to Montenegrin. However, in 2017, the Assembly of Montenegro removed the new letters from any type of governmental documentation. Regardless of the pushback towards the Montenegrin alphabet, it nonetheless represents the desire of Montenegro to be seen as a distinct political and cultural entity from its closest relatives. As Montenegro continues to define itself in a post-Soviet era, we can expect to see parallel shifts in language ideologies as well. Frat. History. Kiki. History. All right, so the historical timeline of Montenegro. I say, why do you take us back to antiquity? Because that's your line. <laughs> and away we go. I'm going to try to go kind of fast because I've got a lot here. So let's get into it. Uh -oh. yeah, that's super embarrassing, but just keep powering through. <laughs> Leave it in. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to split them up into little named eras. So our first era is called the pre-Slavonic slash Roman era. Okay, so before the arrival of the Slavonic peoples in the Balkans during the 6th century AD, the area now known as Montenegro was inhabited principally by the Illyrians. That's a good name. It's a good name. It's very Game of Thrones. Um, it's also in She's the Man with Amanda Bynes. The high school that she attends is called Illyria, and the Australian football coach, or soccer coach, he's like, this is Illyria. There's so much we you could know. We don't make <laughs> decisions based on gender. There's so much knowledge to know, Kiki, and that little tidbit is just, I'm glad you know it, but. <laughs> yeah, you should probably just continue, because this is going to be a long history, and yes. I made it worse. Okay, so during the Bronze Age, the Illyri people, probably the southernmost Illyrian tribe of that Illyria, time. I think it's Illyria, but... Keep going. All right, the Illyrii, the, the southernmost tribe of Illyria during that time. Uh, they gave the name to the entire group that were living near Skadar Lake on the border of Albania and Montenegro and neighboring with the Greek tribes to the south. Um, along the seaboard of the Adriatic, the movement of peoples that was typical of the ancient Mediterranean world ensured the settlement of a mixture of colonists, traders, and those in search of territorial conquest. Substantial Greek colonies were established on the 6th and 7th centuries B.C., and the Celts are known to have settled there in the 4th century BC. During the 3rd century BC, an indigenous Illyrian kingdom emerged with its capital at Scutari. The Romans mounted several punitive expeditions against local pirates um, that were from the Illyrian kingdoms, and finally conquered the kingdom of Illyria in the 2nd century BC, annexing it to the province of Illyricum. You know, <laughs> good naming, Romans. Um, so let's get to this Romanization period. And the division of the Roman Empire between Roman and Byzantine rule, and subsequently between Latin and Greek churches, was marked by a line that ran northward from Skrodra, or Skodra, through modern Montenegro. Uh, this symbolized the status of this religion um, as a perpetual marginal zone between the economic, cultural, and political worlds of these Mediterranean peoples. As the Roman power declined, however, this part of the Dalmatia coast suffered from intermittent ravages by various semi-nomadic invaders, especially the Goths in the late 5th century and the Avars during the 6th century. These were soon supplanted by the Slavs, who became widely established in Dalmatia by the middle of the 7th century. Because the terrain was extremely rugged and locked any major sources of wealth, such as mineral riches, the area that is now Montenegro became a haven for residual groups of earlier settlers, including some tribes who had escaped Romanization. This gets us into the first of our Middle Ages section. Um, so in the second half of the 6th century, Slavs migrated from the Bay of Kotor. Is it Kotor or Kotor? 
I think it's couture. Couture. Okay. Um, I remember because I was looking at the podcast about it, and yeah. they brought it up a lot. It, it sounded like they were saying couture a lot, but I think that's wrong. But I do remember thinking it was like Hodor, so I think couture is the okay. right choice. So in that sixth century, Slavs migrated from the Bay of Couture to the river of Bojana, and the hinterland of it as well, uh, surrounding that Skadar Lake we mentioned earlier. This formed the Principality of Doklia. Um, under the following missions of Cyril and Methodus, uh, the population was Christianized, and the Slavic tribes organized into a semi-independent dukedom of uh, Dulkja, Doklea, uh, by the 9th century. After facing subsequent Bulgarian domination, people were split as the Doklean brother Archons split the land among each other after 900 AD. Um, Prince Kozlov Klonimirovich of the Serbian Vlastimirovich dynasty. It looks right to me. You're doing a very good job with these names. <laughs> I try my best. Extended his influence over Doklia in the 10th century. After the fall of the Serbian realm in 960, great name, the Serbian realm, the Doklians faced a renewed Byzantine occupation through to the 11th century. The local ruler, Jovan Vladimir Dukljanski, uh, whose cult still remains in the Orthodox Christian tradition, was at this time struggling to ensure independence. These Slavic names are going to get you pretty hard, but seems like you're doing okay. I'm trying my best. So Middle Ages Part 2. Stefan uh, Vojislav started an uprising against the Byzantine domination and gained a huge victory against the army of several Byzantine strategs in uh, Tujami parentheses bar. I think a Tujamili because I'm pretty sure when we see the J in Slavic, yeah. it makes a Ya. Okay, that's good to know. Tujamili, uh, uh, bar, maybe also another name, uh, in 1042, which put an end to the Byzantine influence over the Stoklia region. In 1055, I mean 1054, the Great Schism, uh, the Doklia fell on the side of the Catholic Church. Uh, Bar became a Brisofric, a Brisofric in 1067, and in 1077, Pope Gregory VII recognized uh, Duklia, uh, Doklia as an independent state, acknowledging its king, Mihailo, or Michael, of the Vojislav Yevik dynasty, founded by um, that nobleman, Stefan uh, Vojislav, as Rex Doklia, the king of Dukhya. Uh, <laughs> it's hard, sorry. Later on, Mihalo, Michael, sent his troops, led by his son, Bodin, in 1072 to assist the uprising of Slavs in Macedonia. In 1082, after numerous pleas, the, the Bar uh, Bishofric of... The Bar Bishofric of Bar was upgraded to an Archbishofric. <laughs> Sounds right to me. Okay. Um, the expansion of the kings of the Vojislav Yevik dynasty led to the control over the other Slavic lands, including the Zahumulje, Bosnia, and Rasia. The might of the Doklia declined, and they generally, generally became subjected to the grand princes of Rasia in the 12th century. Sifan Nemanja was born in 1117 in Ribnica, which is today Podgorica. Podgorica. Uh, in 1168, as the Serbian Grand Zupan, Stefan Nemanja took Doklia. So he became the leader there. Oh man, that's super embarrassing. For the second time. Our third part of the Middle Ages, um, I'm going to kind of briefly go over them because I mean, we can go into infinite detail here in the last three hours. That's the story of our podcast. We <laughs> exactly. could do way worse. So I'm going to kind of list the dynasties that were in charge of this area of Montenegro during the Middle Ages, the late Middle Ages, leading into um, early modernity. So the first three dynasties, um, the region of uh, this Dukla, the Duke Ya region, also known as Zeta, was ruled by the this uh, from Stefan the uh, Nemanjic dynasty from 1186 until 1360, um, and then the principality of Zeta was ruled by the House of Balsic. From 1356 until 1421, um, after the death of Balsa III, he was the last representative of House, of house Balsic. Uh, the Zeta was joined the Serbian Despotate in 1421. And then finally, the Principality of Zeta was ruled by the House of Sirnojevic, that dynasty from 1451 until 1496. So this gets us into early modernity. Um, and here's a little side note before we get into the Ottomans. 
the Republic of Venice dominated the coasts of today's Montenegro from 1420 to 1797. In those four centuries, the area around the Kotaro or Kotor, Kotor coast became part of Venetian Albania. At that also, time. that is where the name Montenegro comes from, is that Venetian. Because oh, really? of the, the mountain, which we'll look up really quick. No, because I thought was like they're like it's the Black Mountain. Yeah. Um, and that's that's how they got the name. That's why it's Montenegro, and it's not a more Slavic name. It's oh, more of a... well, that's that's interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, but I say that just like this: the um, the Ottomans now um, come into the fray. So part of today's Montenegro, called uh, Sanzak, was under Ottoman control from 1498 to 1912. Well, coastal Montenegro was under Venetian control, and the rest of Montenegro was independent from 1516, when Vladika uh, Vavil was elected as ruler of Montenegro by its clans, and it became a theocratic state. This was kind of in, uh, kind of in, in response to Ottoman control in other parts of Montenegro. Uh, only small town centers were controlled by Ottomans, but mountains and rural areas were de facto independent and were controlled by several Montenegrin clans, which were warrior societies. A little bit more about them. The Montenegrin people were divided into these clans, also known as pleme. Every adult male from a clan was a warrior, and they took part in different wars. Uh, clans were ruled by chieftains, who were also military leaders within the clans. All clan leaders met up several times a year on Zabor, slash assembly, and Setinje, the Montenegrin capital at the time, to make important decisions for the nation, to solve blood feuds and to declare wars. Um, to go back to the name Montenegro, it was named for Mount Lochen, um, which was covered in dense forest, giving it a very dark appearance. Hmm. Just a little etymology. And the etymology ceiling. Alright, let's not get carried away. <laughs> the etymology ceiling fan. That's what the segment is. Alright. So as the etymology ceiling fan wafts down on us, it's cool air of knowledge, we're going to get into independent and Ottoman Montenegro, this, this uh, dichotomy. So independent, independent Montenegro, rather, at that time was divided into three separate parts. Old Montenegro, which had territory of modern-day towns of Satinje and parts of uh, Danilovograd. It was the core of Montenegro, with Satinje as the capital. Uh, Montenegrin prince bishops, Vladikas, lived and ruled from Satinje have Birda, or Birda, the hills. This included the territories of northeastern Montenegro. This area was it was also known as the Seven Hills, Sedam Birda, the hills, uh, because it was inhabited by seven Montenegrin clans. I'm not going to name them here because it would be a travesty. The clans were led by uh, uh, voivodas, dukes, either elective or hereditary ones. So when you say, like, hill people, I just think of, like, 30 Rock. And he's like, no, not until the hill people came. <laughs> uh, the third part of independent Montenegro at that time was a Old Herzegovina, an area in West Montenegro, which was part of the short-lived medieval state of Herzegovina. So that's independent Montenegro, which there were three requisite parts. Um, in 1514, the Ottoman-controlled territory of Montenegro was proclaimed as a separate Sanjak, Sanjak, of Montenegro by the order of Sultan Bayezid II. The first Sanjak Beg, or governor, who was chosen was Ivan Kronojevic's son Staniza, um, who converted to Islam and governed until 1528. Despite Skander Beg's emphasized cruelty, the Ottomans didn't have any real power in Montenegro. Uh, Vladika Flavil was elected in 1516 as Montenegrin Prince Bishop by the Montenegrin people. Uh, this gets us into the time of the elective Vladikas, which is from 1516 to 1697. Um, for 180 years after their first appointment, Vlad the Vladikas were elected by clans and people, an arrangement that was ultimately abandoned in favor of a more hereditary system in 1697. For most of this period, the Montenegrin people were in constant struggle for existence against the Ottoman Empire. Um, I, ha I have here some a little more detail about that struggle. Um, there was the subject of the Harak, which is an Ottoman tax, which led to some conflicts. Um, Montenegrins were actually um, pretty successful in wars against the Ottomans because they had this um, kind of guerrilla warfare style. I'm not going to get into the battles. It's a little bit extraneous detail. So, let's safe to say 
independent Montenegrins Negrins were very very much in revolt against the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. F that colonizer stuff. This is an anti-colonization podcast. I just feel like we're at the point where we know enough where, like, colonizers ruin things. Not so much a a hot take to take anymore. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right, please continue. All right. I'm sorry for all my interruptions. (laughs) I just can't shut up. All right, let's get this into modern history. Nice. Petar Petrovich Niegos, perhaps the most influential Vladika, reigned in the first half of the 19th century. In 1851, Danilo Petrovich Negos became Vladika, but in 1852 he married, threw off his ecclesiastical character, assumed the title of Knyaz? I think it's Niaz. Niaz, or Prince, Danilo I, and transformed his land into a secular principality. And following the assassination of Danilo, however, by Todor Kad- Kadich in Kotor in 1860, the Montenegrins proclaimed Nicholas I as his successor on August 14th of that year. In 1861-1862, Nicholas engaged in an unsuccessful war against the Ottoman Empire, with Montenegro holding on to its independence only by the skin of its teeth. My least favorite expression. Hmm. He was much more successful, however, in 1876. Following the Herzegovinian uprising, partly initiated by his clandestine activities, he yet again declared war on Turkey. Uh, Serbia joined Montenegro in that war, but it was defeated by Turkish forces the same year. Uh, Russia then joined in, um, and they routed the Turks in 1877. This leads to a few different treaties, but we're going to have to keep um, this new kind of um, influence in you know Europe- European allies in, in mind, because Modern History Part 2 kind of takes us into the Balkan Wars and then World War One. So under Nicholas I, the country was created its first constitution... In 1905, kicky little nude music there for constitutions, and was elevated to the rank of kingdom in 1910. During his reign, Montenegro was an ally of Russia in the Russo-Japanese War, uh, with Montenegrin volunteers fighting in the Russian army. Here's a fun fact. In 2006, over 100 years after the fighting of the Russo-Japanese War, Japan finally recognized uh, Montenegrin independence and declared the war over, and a peace treaty was then signed. That's interesting. That didn't come up in our Japanese history. I don't think Montenegrin's little peace treaty was a big enough blip in Japanese history. There was a lot going on in that episode. Yeah, and a lot about Pokemon episodes. There so. was a little more about Pokemon than there was about Montenegro in our Pri- Japan episode. Priorities. This leads into the Balkan Wars, 1912 to 1913. Montenegro did make further territorial gains by splitting Sanjak with Serbia. However, the captured city of, Ska- of Skadar had to be given up to the new state of Albania at the insistence of the great powers, despite Montenegrins having invested over you know, 10,000 lives for the conquest. Um, and this leads us into World War I. So Montenegro suffered severely in World War I. Shortly, Austria, shortly after Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia in July 1914, Montenegro lost little time in declaring war on the central powers, on Austria-Hungary in the, in the first instance, on August 6, 1914. Uh, this was despite Austrian diplomacy promising to secede Chocolder uh, to Montenegro if it remained neutral. You know, then there was you know all the fighting of World War One. I. I don't want to get into that too much. Um, but at the tail end, King Nicholas fled to Italy in January of 1916. Then he fled to France, uh, and the government of Montenegro transferred its operations to Bordeaux. Eventually, the Allies liberated Montenegro from the Austrians, and a newly convened National Assembly of Puerto Rico accused the king of seeking a separate peace with the enemy, and they disposed him. They banned his return, and they decided that Montenegro... So they disposed or they deposed him? They disposed of him by deposing him. Right. And they decided that Montenegro should join the Kingdom of Serbia on December 1st, 1918. A part of the former Montenegro military forces to lord the king started a rebellion... Um, known as the Christmas Uprising in 1919. That was quelled. And between the two world wars, you have a period kind of of, of Yugoslavia. Oh, shit. No, not a spill. Not a spill. <laughs> okay, we're safe. <laughs> we're spilling wine over here, folks. Um, I was trying to put my legs up so it was like sleepover style. Um, I don't think it'll work. In the period between the two world wars, Nikola's grandson, King Alexander Karadjordjevic, dominated the Yugoslav government. 
1922, Montenegro became part of the Zeta area and later the Zeta Banate of that Yugoslav area. And during this period, uh, two main problems in Montenegro were that they lost sovereignty and they had a bad economic situ uh, situation. Um, we can't really get into detail with that, for, for example, but uh, as they were devastated by war, uh, they were never paid the, rec the reparations to which it had um, the right um, as one of the allies of the Great War. Stop it! <laughs> Sorry. Um, most of the populations lived in rural areas, um, and some smaller parts of civilians had better standards of life, but of course, World War II is around the corner. And so this section is called the puppet, the puppet, quote-unquote, Kingdom of Montenegro and World War II. So during World War II, Italy, under Benito Mussolini, occupied Montenegro in 1941, and they annexed it actually to the Kingdom of Italy, um, the whole area of Kotor, where there was a small Venetian-speaking population. They kind of wanted to have, just like the Nazis had a German fatherland, motherland, oh, yeah. the Italians wanted that kind of, you know, manifest destiny as well. Um... Let's see. The Public Kingdom of Montenegro was created and under fascist control where, while Kirsto Zirnov Popovic returned from, ex from, turned from his exile in Rome in 1941 and he attempted to lead the Green Party who wanted to reinstate the monarchy of the Montenegrins. Um, Montenegro was also ravaged by a terrible guerrilla war after the Nazis replaced the defeated Italians in 1943. And then also have a note here. There was huge civil war politically within Montenegro while World War II was going on. I don't think there was a lot of allies versus Axis battles there. But the Montenegrins themselves, there was a lot of infighting politically. So, and Podgorica was liberated by the Socialist Partisans on, four, on 19 of December 1944. And the War of Liberation had been won. So it was over for them that World War II was. Um... Tito actually uh, acknowledged Montenegro's massive contribution to the war against the Axis powers, um, and, and it was established as one of the six republics of Yugoslavia post-war. So this gets us into the latter half of the 20th century, Montenegro within socialist Yugoslavia. From 1945 until 1992, Montenegro became a constituent republic of the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. It was the smallest republic in that federation and had the lowest population. Montenegro became economically stronger than ever, however, since it gained help from federal funds um, as an underdeveloped republic, and also became a tourist destination at this time. In, 14, in, in 1948, Yugoslavia faced the Tito-Stalin split within the USSR, um, so tensions politically within the socialist republics, and a period of high tensions between Yugoslavia and the USSR, caused by disagreements about each country's influences on its neighbors, and with a six-way split, it's going to be quite a few. Through the second half of the 1940s and the whole of the 1950s, the country underwent uh, infrastructural rejuvenation thanks to um, federal funding. Uh, Montenegro's historic capital, uh, Satinje, was replaced with Podgorica, which in the interwar period became the biggest city in the republic, um, although at this stage it was practically in ruins due to the heavy bombing from World War II. Um... So I kind of skip ahead a little bit. To, yeah, you got to keep this going. I, I do. Um, so they have the breakup of Yugoslavia and the Bosnian War. The breakup of communist Yugoslavia, 1991 to 1992, and the introduction of a multi-party political system found Montenegro with a young leadership that had risen to office only a few years earlier in the late 1980s. In April 1992, following a referendum, Montenegro decided to join Serbia in forming the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, which officially put the second Yugoslavia to rest. During the Kosovo War, ethnic Albanians took refuge in Montenegro, but were still under threat by Serbian soldiers, who were able to take refugees back into Serbia-controlled areas and imprison them. So there was still tension within these six different republics that made up former Yugoslavia. I skip ahead here. In the spring of 1999, at the height of NATO offenses, 21 Albanians died in separ several separate and unexplained incidents in Montenegro, according to the Republic's prosecutor. So there's some... Some mysterious stuff going on. Mysterious stuff. I mean, violence, violence <laughs> I in one of the... I would say shady, not even mysterious. Shady. So, yeah, if violent, violence and conflict in one of the Republics bleeds across those porous lines. Yes. Um, uh, during the war, Montenegro was bombed as part of NATO operations against Yugoslavia, but it wasn't heavily as bombed as Serbia was. 
This gets into the independence movement. In 2003, after years of wrangling and outside assistance, the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia renamed itself as Serbia and Montenegro, which is you know, the name I recalled before this episode started. Yeah. As like, hey, I remember that. You brought it up, I think, in our intro, didn't you? Yeah. Uh, and it officially reconstituted itself as a loose kind of union. Loose union was my nickname in high school. That's your fourth nickname. You had a very literate, knowledgeable, and mean friend group in high school. <laughs> um, the state union had a parliament and an army in common. And for three years, until 2006, you can do the math, neither Serbia nor Montenegro held a referendum on the breakup of that union. However, a referendum was announced in Montenegro to decide the future of the republic. The ballots cast in this controversial 2006 independent, independence referendum resulted in a 55.5 victory for independent supporters, just above, just above the 55% borderline mark set by the EU. So this was not a 99.8% independence Mm-mm. like we saw with South Sudan. This is like skin of the teeth that says something you hate. Yeah, I mean, this yeah is... so I can keep saying it because of how uncomfortable it makes me. I love it. And this is an uncomfortable, narrow margin of independence, but Montenegro declared independence on June the 3rd, 2006. Um, and then that gets us into modern-day Montenegro. Just a few things here about some things that happened in the modern era. Um, October 16th, 2016, the day of a parliamentary election, uh, a coup d'etat against the government of Milo Lukanovic had been prepared, according to a special prosecutor. Um, 14 people were involved, including Russian nationals and opposition leaders in Montenegro. Um, they were stopped, though. They were arrested for a conspiracy against the constitutional order. They almost had a coup. In June 2017, uh, Montenegro formally became a member of NATO, kind of an eventuality, but um, because they were scared of retaliatory actions on part of Russia, but they became a member. And then right now in the news, we have Montenegro and Serbia both wanting to become EU members in the future, you know, kind of pushing for a 2025 bid. So that kind of ends our history of Montenegro from the pre-Slavonic era to now. I need a breath. I need a first break. Yep, it sounds like time for a break to me. All right, we'll catch you after the break, folks. Welcome back to the world as we know it. As always, we're going to kick things back off with a trip to Kiki. In the flag corner. Oh, you mean my favorite segment? Exactly the one. All right. I said this a little bit in the beginning. So the flag of Montenegro is red with a gold border, and it has the coat of arms of Montenegro in the center. And that's actually the most interesting part of the flag, in my opinion. It's the primary detail. And the coat of arms is a two-headed eagle, which is a symbol of the Byzantine and Roman empires and origin. So you'll actually see this on a lot of neighboring flags in the region. I know that the Albanian flag also has a double-headed eagle. Um, other countries too, but this is the Montenegro podcast. So It's also holding that, what's the sphere with the little cross on top called Kings Always Hold? A, um, it's not a scepter. It is a Globus Crucifer, which is actually something that if you watch a lot of coronations, like I do, or you're familiar with any kind of Byzantine art or Renaissance art, happens a lot. Um, it's just a symbol of Christ's dominion over the world, so it's usually like an orb or a sphere with a cross on it. Oh, neat. Uh, so the eagle is holding that and a scepter. The scepter uh, with, has a cross on it also. So We get a lot of Christ imagery here, Kiki. You know, you would be right with that Christ imagery. That's part of the Russian Empire, or the Holy Roman Empire. Those are kind of one and the same for a time, and it, it does symbolize the strong Christian tradition that was in the country for a thousand years. Um, and it's also the lion passant in the in escutcheon, which in heraldry, if you're familiar, the escutcheon is like the shield shape. Yeah. Um, and it means Episcopal authority and can be conceived as a metaphor of the Lion of Judah. So more religious iconography there. Yeah, it's very, um, very Christian heraldic. Yep. So anyway, that's the flag of Montenegro. Uh, Neat. If you are into, like, heraldry and vexillology, too, these it's a very interesting. When when flags have their coat of arms on the flag, um, like, knowing what those things mean is something that's very interesting. And, like, I hope to get into more during this podcast because understanding what this is is very cool. Especially when, you know, like, lions are very pervasive 
um, in religious iconography as well as like when you go when you get to the UK, they have lions as their royal family animal and stuff like that. So yeah. anyway, cool. that's our flag corner. Wow, what a great trip to the corner. Favorite segment. <laughs> so, um, in the discussion of culture and politics and all things Montenegrin, Kiki, do you want to start off with a certain subject? Do you would like me to? You know, um, things that I want to talk about on Montenegro are a little bit more modern. Okay. Um, things. So, to prepare for this podcast, I did listen to two other podcasts about Montenegro. Okay. One was in German. Oh. Which I shared with you, Brad. Um, for our listeners who may not know, we both speak enough German. We speak. Some. Speak is a strong word. I I dabble. So I understood about a third of the podcast, um, and the English one made a lot more sense. <laughs> Unsurprisingly. Um, but they were talking, like, these are travel podcasts, because that's the easiest to find when we're doing research, is, like, yeah. what are people looking for when they go to Montenegro? And one thing that I think we're going to see um, now, and especially in the next 10 years, is Montenegro and other Balkan states really grow in the tourism industry. Oh, neat. Uh, so that's one thing... Um, that I thought was really interesting because Montenegro is a very small country, uh, so it's really easy to get through in a couple days. Knowing this history, I feel like there's a lot more things you can do and a lot more things to focus on. And if you don't know these things, you may just kind of, like, pass it by. Yeah. And it doesn't have, like, a thousand islands and a lot of coasts like Croatia no, does. No, it has kind of one super historical coast. Yeah. Uh, and some mountains and some really great churches if you want to visit those. There's some really beautiful history going on. Can I hit you with a cool geography tidbit? Because we are a history and geography podcast. Please! Okay, so, you know what a fjord is, right? I sure do. So, the Boca Bay in Montenegro is the southernmost fjord in the world. Oh, wow! It's got these towering peaks surrounding it where the glacier used to be. And then it has, like, a rocky coastline, and it's got this beautiful waterside town around it. Um, cruise ships go there. It's got, like, bright blue water. I mean, it's like a picturesque scene out of Norway, but it's in the Balkans, Kiki. Who would have thunk? And this, like, people are talking a lot about Dubrovnik, which is the city of Croatia. Um, yeah. and Dubrov- King's Landing. Yeah. I was going to say, Dubrovnik is huge right now um, for all my backpacking and traveling friends, because it is where King's Landing is filmed in the HBO adaption of Game of Thrones. And it's a beautiful, beautiful city. That's in Croatia. It's pretty close to the capital city, Podgorica, though. So people who are there may travel into Montenegro just to see what's going on or check out the beautiful beaches there. One thing that I would be concerned about, too, though, is that it's a very inexpensive place to travel for the time being. Yep. I would be worried about, like... Uses the euro, too, which is a big point. And uses the euro, which is different than Croatia, which we've, I think, talked about in the beginning. We did. You mentioned it, yeah. Okay, that's why I'm not sure what we talked about before we're recording or we're recording. <laughs> uh, but uh, the concern also is what this what the growing tourism industry there will do to the locals. Hmm. So I would say, like... Because these are travel podcasts that I listen to, I get a lot of information. It seems so important that when people visit there, that they stay in hostels and hotels in some Airbnbs because that does help locals make money. But it also, there's incentive for our landlords in the area to outprice locals and uh, Montenegrins as well as Croats and Makes everybody in, that, in the area so that they can let out those rooms just to tourists. Did your podcast mention anything about like safety? I mean, there. I mean, there's like yes. in the '90s there was conflict and stuff. They but did nowadays. That wasn't know. mentioned. Also, that like people are hesitant to travel that area because the last time Montenegro was on the news was when there was a civil war. Yeah, there's like Serbian snipers uh-huh. and stuff. But and it's, it's scary. A, apparently, a very safe place to travel now. They welcome tourists because they need that money. Yep. Um, and, and they need that money. Yeah, <laughs> they gotta get them dollar bills or them <laughs> euros. Coins. <laughs> yeah. They, they get night geld. <laughs> um, so anyway, but I was saying it's a, it's a safe place to travel. Welcome tourists. There's actually like no McDonald's in Montenegro. Like it's pretty untouched by global business. I thought that's the standard of untouched. Like, <laughs> I know. There is Sad. one hard rock cafe in Podgorica. An embassy. Wow. I feel safe. <laughs> it's beautiful. And they have one Hilton hotel, but that's basically the only national chain of hotels they have there. That's neat. So I would say like, if you're going to travel there, get there before everybody else does um, and see how beautiful it is before the McDonald's and Starbucks move in. Another tidbit about beauty. Can I hit some with some more geography facts? Please. 
the deepest canyon in Europe. You think it might might be like where the Alps is or something like that. You'd be wrong. The deepest canyon in Europe is in. I think said cane. I was like, like sugar cane. <laughs> <laughs> Lord, it be. Um, no, it's in Montenegro. It's you the... mean canyon? You just have a hard time. Canyon. Yeah. Maybe it's my southern accent. I think it's a southern it's accent. Canyon. It's a canyon of the River Tara. And uh, this canyon stretch within Montenegro is protected as um, part of one of their national parks. And it's also a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Uh, another great geography thing that we can see from these pictures, too, is that ancient Roman influence. I see some aqueducts. Aqueducts? I love a good aqueduct. <laughs> How positively Roman of you. Um, and I, okay, Brad, I know you're a Mad Men fan. I am. Kiki said that just because she can talk about it because she's an even yeah. bigger Mad Men fan. Uh, but you know, like, I forget who's mentioning it. They say, do you know where the greatest ro- the ruins of Rome are? They're in Albania. They're in Monaco because the Romans took down their own artifacts to build outhouses or something like that. Huh. Do you remember that? Anyway. I don't remember. But that's but... like, you can see some great Roman architecture. Neat. And wonderful, like, Roman buildings and stuff from what they were building out in Montenegro and in the Balkans. They also have, like, that Venetian coastline. So of course. Have, like, and, like, the tour and, probably yeah. has, like, tons of... There's just, like, a lot of great, beautiful ancient history there that you'll find better preserved than deep tourist traps like in Rome. Yep. Because Rome, I mean, obviously has a lot. But if you're really interested in Roman history, that's a place to go. Like yeah, I am. Makes sense. So yeah. I'm gonna go there too really bad. Um, um hopefully we'll get a sponsor for this podcast and we'll become a traveling podcast. A traveling podcast. And here's a little thing. Uh so, you know, we are also like a mysterious podcast because y'all don't know where we live or what school yeah, we go to. Clearly but the school we go to does have, you know, a very uh highly sought after like environmental pedigree. So here's a fun fact. Montenegro was in nineteen ninety two the first country in the world to have written in its constitution text about environmental protection so and it just, the montenegrin constitution defines the country as a democratic a social and an ecological nation wow an environmental affair if you will uh all right another <laughs> other thing i want to talk about because y'all know idg af about sports in general but when it comes to global sporting events i'm so in it's not even funny and what i found out when I was doing my research for Montenegro, was that all the microstates of Europe have a mini Olympics for the other microstates. You're fucking me. I'm not, indeed. So it's actually, it's organized by the European Olympic committees of each of these states. The participating countries are Andorra, Cyprus, Iceland, Liechtenstein, Luxembourg, Malta, Monaco, Montenegro, and San Marino. All little babies. <laughs> little babies. That sounds so kind of sad. It is. Here, really, uh, Montenegro sorry. was the latest to join. Is actually the biggest. The Faroe Islands want to join, but they're a part of Denmark. Please, we Faroe don't care Islands. how autonomous you are until you're your own microstate. Who do you think you are? Please, please. And it goes by like both population and. Um, size. Size. Yeah. So like Iceland can participate because no one lived there. Uh, but they have sporting events every two years that coincide like with summer Olympic sports. It's always summer, just never winter. They don't do winter Olympic sports for them for the micro countries. I don't know why, because so many of them are close to mountain regions. Huh. Um, but I found this. Maybe it out. takes too much money to set up like a winter arena or something. I was gonna say all members all have populations of less than one million people. Cyprus is the only exception because when they joined in 1984, their population was below one. One million. Yeah. Those uh, Cypriots. Uh, you know them. Cyprian and around. <laughs> uh, and they, let me see. They got served. <laughs> they, they participate in nine Olympic sports. And it's called the Game of the Small States of Europe. The GSSE. Happens every two years. Uh, and so awesome. And it started in San Marino. So I just like, I think that is so cool. Yeah. It's, where else is Liechtenstein going to get to like compete in like. I have a presence. That's like what I think is like when you have a, such a small population and you're competing with large populations, like it doesn't matter how talented 
your population can be, you're just, it's against size. So when you have all microstates, oh, I just think that's wonderful. And there's also a difference between a micronation and a microstate because micronation comes up a lot, but those are yeah. self-declared groups of people. Yeah. Like the Navajo Nation in America could declare themselves they are a micronation because they're a small nation of people within a larger nation, but they are not a microstate because they're not a separate yeah. country. State needs borders. Yes. Sovereignty. So I just, I just declare that up for yeah. anybody who's listening who may not know. That's the story. That's what I cared about when I was doing my research. I no, I like, think that's fascinating. I think it's really cool. Very cool. Also, um, listeners, I don't want to make this episode too long, but you know, like I'm so into Roman history. That was one of the reasons I got so into history in general was um, listening to the History of Rome podcast by Mike Duncan. Uh, so hearing more about Rome in our first European country uh, was such like a it's was, it was like kind of like going back home it's like when you're reading Harry Potter and you're in the seventh book and it's like when they break back into the castle yeah and you feel like you're back in Hogwarts true that's kind of how I felt when I was like Aww. reading and doing everything about like Montenegro and Age yeah. I mean I think it's been great to get a non-western civ start and like deep dives in the podcast because then it really forces us like I knew nothing about the um, South Sudan. Yeah, South Sudan, or like the, like the Sudanic empires and like West Africa. All yeah. new, all trailblazing. I learned a lot. It was fun, but this is more like I know a little bit, so I can get more into the things I don't know about. Exactly. All right, what's next? Um, so we got into some good cultural discussion. We got talked about that. Uh, we already kind of mentioned um, politically, you know, in kind of modern times that they're vying for EU membership along with Serbia. Um, but we can talk about that a little more in current events. From what we understand, also, more politically stable, and it's looking good for Montenegro. There's a happy ending going, Aww. or not a happy, a happy present, I should say, going on in Montenegro, which we haven't seen in our past few countries. Yeah, like and Guatemala, we're not going to hear about it a lot, in the, a lot in the news, but yeah, good things on the horizon. So Kiki, post-research, post-podcast, familiarity ratings, any changes? I take myself up to a five. Wow. A plus three for myself. Um, I want to go there. That's what I got from my research, from listening to you, Brad, and from talking about it. I really would love to go to Montenegro, specifically in the Balkans, um, and just kind of, like, feel it. What about you? Cool. Um, so I started from a one. I'm going to give myself up to a four, so plus three. Still lower than you. You always go very humble, and I go pretty arrogant. A little humble, but also because because Montenegro is such a fault line, especially in the history. You have like Ottoman influences, and you have like predominant—I mean, not predominant—but there's a, a culture of like Islam there now. But it's also like Christians. There's also a little bit of Catholics. There's a lot of like melding going on. So I think as we do more Balkan countries, I'll also learn more about Montenegro. So any more Balkan I do, I can add a point to Montenegro as well. So I mm-hmm. think like these collective familiarity ratings as a region will be bolstered in the future. So four for now. Good starting point. Yes, I think this is also a great intro to Europe. Yes, I agree. Um, very excited that we've hit almost every continent now. We have. Well, not Australia, but have we can't. gone to South America? Central America. We've done Central America, but, but that means Central, neither North Central or America South America isn't a continent, though. Right, it's part of North America. Central America is part of North America. I always thought so. Well, then I guess you're right. This is the argument of the century. Right. But anyway, so we still need to get into, let's say, South America proper? Yes. And Australia. Um, and Australia. Ultra or Mania. we'll go Oceania. Oceania. Okay, sure, yeah. Um, any of those. And then, yeah, we'll have covered at least a little part of every globe. Should we do an Antarctica episode one day? I would love to. Um, I feel like the history of penguins is very <laughs> fascinating. They march, you know. They sure do. <laughs> Uh, all right. I all think right. we're going to take our final break now. Yeah, so final break. That concludes our talk on Montenegro. We're going to come back and do some current events. Yep, I've been reading a lot this week, guys, but not by Montenegro authors, so and we'll right. get into it. Prepare yourselves. Get your notepads down for re- weekly recommends. All I right. wouldn't call them recommendations, <laughs> all right, but we'll please, see. take a break. See you then. <laughs> Welcome back to the world as we know it. Kiki, what's happening in your world? 
quite a bit, Brad. So I could not find any Montenegrin authors uh, from my audiobook source this week. Okay. My unnamed audiobook source. But I did find some other books. So here's my favorite TV show right now is Jane the Virgin. Um, and if you're not familiar, there's like a it's like a telenovela adapted for an English audience. What what's the source? What's the streaming? It's on the CW. You can find okay. it on um, Roku Stick. Yeah, yeah. Netflix, anything. It's easy to find and it's free because of CW. It's just a very good show. But they talk about romance novels a lot and romance plots, and Fun fact about me, in high school, I was very into romance novels, like the ones, the dirtiest covers, and I used to share with my grandma, and like, they're always like 10 for 10 at the used bookstore, so I had a huge (laughs) supply of romance novels that I really enjoyed reading, and then I stopped because I started becoming more of a feminist, and a lot of like, the plots were pretty assault heavy, uh, not all of them, but I was reading ones from primarily like the mid 1980s to early 1990s where people cared less about consent. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so uh, I was watching Jane the Virgin. I got the urge, and then I started listening to romance novels as audiobooks. So I read two. They're both by an author whose name is Lindsay Sands. One is Bliss. And oh, the, that cover is, is it's a romance novel. It is a saucy cover. I'm showing it to Brad. It is very um, bodice ripper, we'll say. That's called Bliss. And the other one I read is called Falling for the Highlander. Oh, wow. Looking for <laughs> only actually, one yeah, It's part of a larger series of Highlander books. Not like Highlander Time Travelers, but like a large Scottish family. And they're all brothers, and they, you know, there's, like, women, and they rescue women, and the women went into their lives. Whatever. It was pretty good. Ooh, 10 out of 10, Keith. You open a window. <laughs> um, those are my Lindsay Sands. If anybody wants to buy a separate <laughs> romance novel podcast that doesn't exist yet. And the other one Called is... Called Lowlander. <laughs> <Hey>! <laughs> um, So I also read a book called The Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving a Fuck. By Sarah Knight, which is a kind of a parody of the life-changing magic of Tidying Up by Marie Kondo, <laughs> which I've also read. That's funny. Um, and, like, the premise of that book was basically, like, like, it gives, like, the advice I hate the most. Which is, like, stop caring what other people think. Novel, Just wow. do you. Powerful. And I'm like, I'm not going to stop caring what other people think. I can't. But what I can do is, like, I can find ways to like just like tell people like I don't want to do this and it's okay for me to not want to do this and so that was important for someone to like give me a kind of permission where it's like if you don't want to go to someone's poetry slam you say I'm sorry I'm not into poetry slams but if you want to hang out another time let's do it brave so I was by Sarah Knight if anybody's interested I started two other books one is called the Betancourt Affair and it's about um, the scandal that affected the L'Oreal franchisees and owners in Paris okay. is recently in, in Nicolas Sarkozy. I'm not too far into the book now. It hasn't really grabbed me, but I know I'll finish it eventually. And also I started one called The Badass Librarians of Timbuktu by Joshua Hammer, which is about the uh, librarians, the badass ones, if you will, <laughs> in Timbuktu, Mali, who work to preserve their libraries and ancient texts and books uh, during Islamic and, like, somewhat violent attempts to remove those books from their hands. Yeah. So I'm getting into those. Those are kind of like my daytime when I'm at work books because I don't care about my internship that much (laughs) at this point. Uh, But those are the books I'm reading. Oh, I also just started What I Talk About, What I Talk About Running, which is something I put on hold during our Japan episode by Haruki Murakami. So I'm looking forward to getting into that one. It's more awesome. of a memoir, though. Cool. What about you, Brad? Uh, so the World Cup just ended in Croatia. Finally. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what? No, just kidding. I love sports. They're great. And Croatia was the runner-up because France won. But talk a lot about Croatia in this episode because they're neighbors with Montenegro. Yep. Because of Dubrovnik. Dubrovnik, um, King's Landing. And, of course, you know, the national team was greeted by a huge, like, 15% of their population was in the crowd that welcomed their team home. That That's huge, beautiful. Huge buses and stuff. Um, I love like the heartwarming stories, like little anecdotes. Croatia's kind of an underdog, right? Oh, they were huge underdogs. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I want. And uh, so 
one of their star players. His name is Modric. He um he saw a guy in the crowd who had Down syndrome, and he had like was wearing Modric's jersey, so he like invited him on stage and like Aww. and like had him arm in arm with him like this whole little press conference and like helped him lead some chants. And I just love the human stories behind. I'm um, listeners. You events. can't see my face right now, but I have one of the I have one of those faces that's like. Oh. Yeah, I just, I just love human elements, and you know, when people are brought together by you know common experience, no matter what, no matter like background and stuff, those are the kind of stories that I love. Um, I watch a lot of documentaries and movies. Um, so I'm a big uh, cinephile, a big movie buff, and I watched two cool documentaries this past week because I'm really into like running and stuff. And there was two documentaries. One was called The Barkley Marathons about. A, it's like an ultra marathoning kind of running event where you run five consecutive marathons in the mountains of Tennessee. It's got some cool histories. It's like one of the hardest marathon running events in like the world. Like to even apply to it, you have to know someone who's run it before because like it's really like archaic. That's crazy. It's like this really cool like crypto way to like even find out how to apply and then you have to get accepted. So that's like what you talk about when you talk about right, which is a reference to the book I just <laughs> talked about by New York County. It's fine. It's, I think it's really neat. Um, another um, documentary I watched was called Made to be Broken. It's about the guy who who ran for... He ran the Appalachian Trail. He trail ran it. Um, it's actually called Appalachian. I learned that from another podcast that I listened to. Appalachian. Because if you call it Appalachian, they're going to throw an apple right at you. Appalachian? Appalachian. So the Appalachian Trail, he ran it north to south. And the, the world record was like 46 days. He ran it in like 45 days. Damn. And it's just crazy awesome what he goes through, like, the team that helped him, like, get restocked and, like, sleep for two hours at a time and get refueled and just go back out there. And I love running docks, not because I'm an ultra marathoner, because I've even ran a marathon, but because, I don't know, I like, like, just, like, what humans can accomplish through, like, sheer persistence and training and willpower, and I think it's really cool. Um, so that's kind of what's going on in my world. Um, other... Funny things, because I feel like we don't have enough banter on this podcast, but also More every banter. other podcast is banter heavy, so maybe our <laughs> listeners are looking for a more organic and pure experience. Uh, but I was, I was talking to Brad before the podcast, like, one of the main marketing methods that I've used to promote this podcast as the social media and promotion captain of yeah. the two of us, like, I just put, I've got a podcast, ask me about it, on my Tinder profile <laughs> and my Bumble profile. Um, but on every, like, like I'd say, like, seven out of ten guys who I've matched with have been like, tell me about your podcast. <laughs> so if you're a listener from Tinder, hey. <laughs> podcast um, is the icebreaker. It always is. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, if we haven't gone on a date yet, this is what my voice sounds like. If we've gone on a date, thanks. That means a lot. <laughs> it wasn't so much banter, it's just geeky wanting to talk about that. Yeah, it's just me wanting to tell everybody that I, I do go on dates. You, you don't see my face unless you follow me on social media because I post all of our selfies every week online. Uh, but anyway, I just thought it was kind of funny. I just think it's it's a funny marketing method that is, I, call it, I told my sister it was micro-marketing because I'm going directly <laughs> to people who would be most interested, which would be people who eventually probably want to see me naked. So, All right. Good banter. Yep, good banter. <laughs> it's also me trying out the stand-up that I hope to eventually turn into like five minutes that I could take to an open mic night. Because, um, Brad, you may not know this. When I was an undergrad, I did open mic nights all the time. I had... Really? What was your set? What was your stick? Well, I can't really give it now. It's not well, as relevant. Don't give it, but like, what was your ethos? What so was here's your... like, I was a sorority woman. I was very active in Greek life and in like campus life. So it was like navigating politics on campus while still being funny, while still being like a lady. So a lot of it was like, <laughs> I, don't, I can't, I can barely remember. It's like, um, went to a party at this fraternity this weekend and it's so hard being the feminist sorority member because i'm like please we don't want to see your genitals we just want you to respect us and then they'd be like no and i'm like oh okay well there's your genitals i don't know <laughs> um, no, i get it i get it yeah it's, it's it was that kind of stuff and it does it's not really relevant since as a graduate student i'm not involved in greek life but um i'm trying to like i'm trying just to just develop myself I'm just going to make a set, 
one day, maybe I'll see, maybe I'll try. <laughs> Uh, but as a future city manager, we'll see yeah. how how much I can get away with without affecting my career. All right. That seems like enough of banter. What a great new segment in addition to our earlier new segment. It's a whole episode of new segments this week. Well, Kiki, I don't think banter is so much of a segment. It's just a natural thing that happens. Yeah, but we always start with like the anthem. So how are we going to incorporate banter unless we make a segment for it? You just want everything funny precluded by a musical cue. <laughs> I really just need a spotlight and a microphone. That's all I've ever wanted. Well, here you go, Kiki. I'm going to turn on the spotlight and give you the microphone and let you rattle off our... Our closing statement. Yes. All right. So uh, you should follow us on Twitter at at the world podcast. We're very responsive and we always follow back. You can also find our blog. Um, I'm kind of thinking, Brad, maybe we should drop the blog for a little bit. It's hard to keep up. That's a conversation we shouldn't have on air, but all right. That's true. It's anyway, it's at at the world podcast. <laughs> the world as we know it podcast at wordpress.com. There's not a lot going on on there. Hashtag banter. It's kind of my own fault. I'll get on, I'll get it eventually, um, and I hope that one day we might be able to hire an intern to keep it up for us. Oh yeah, all that revenue will go right to the intern. It's pretty unlikely, but maybe. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, other things you should follow us on. Please follow our Facebook page if you haven't already. Uh, you can tell us things that you think there, and also please give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, we learned that many people don't know that these reviews and the um, written reviews especially help us to get more followers and to raise us in the ranks on Apple Podcasts, which is why we always uh, read our reviews aloud and rank our reviewers based on how hot they are. And we actually do have a new one for you this week. Yeah, there's several studies have showed that um, higher star ratings do correlate with better physical attractiveness. Yeah, and like that's scientifically proven that our viewers are the most attractive. It is. So this one is from our reviewer, Artaxerxes of Persia. Not going to speculate on who this is. No They idea. did give a five-star review. Wow. Um, so I'm going to guess that probably a hottie. I'm going to say a nine and a half out of ten. Five out of five stars, Tiki. It may be a dime piece. Like a... a <laughs> um, like those romance novels yeah we're not going to speculate on who this is but uh anyway uh what artaxerxes of persia said is what i like about this podcast is that the hosts don't talk down to the listeners the hosts are learning about each country as they go together with the listeners they make mistakes they occasionally mispronounce names they laugh they get shocked it's all part of the process and it makes the host seem very approachable thank you artaxerxes of persia wow single tear very grateful. Yeah, I feel like you're maybe the most attractive reviewer we've had so far. Probably accurate, Kiki. Yeah, I I can't imagine anybody being more attractive. I think there's enough attractiveness banter. So let's get into um, our thank yous. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in to this week for um, the episode of Montenegro. But you can tune in. On this The World As You Know It podcast. Exactly. We're going to skip a week. I'll be out of yes. town next week. I'll be in the rural backwoods of tennessee on a lake house you going to a lake house in tennessee i am um but you can catch us in two weeks for our next country of paraguay, paraguay. Bow, bow, bow. Bow, bow, bow. <laughs> so mark your calendars guys yep and until then dovidenia, dovidenia.